Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandsbury. Well, sometimes we look forward to our shows and uh, this was one of the shows we hoped never to have to do. So uh, on February the 24th, so next Friday, it is the one year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Um, but with such an important topic, we wanted to cycle back round again and uh, look at the issues involved and get uh, get the voices of much more informed people than ourselves. So, uh, Simon, who have we got with us in the studio? So, uh, so joining us in the studio again is um, is Paul Flenley, um, who is a senior lecturer in uh, politics and international uh, relations at Portsmouth University. Um, so he came on the show last year um, to uh, to talk us through that. So we wanted to hear what Paul had to say. Um, so welcome back to the show, Paul. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And after and after Paul's uh, Paul's interview, um, we've got some recorded interviews uh, with some ladies who are either working to help um, help those Ukrainians that are seeking shelter in in the UK, um, and actually the Ukrainians back in um, in in Ukraine, um, and also um, we've got um, one of those refugee ladies uh, coming on to to share her experience as well. So um, as you say people that know a lot more about this experience to share than us. And I'm sure all of our listeners um, that want to be able to understand um, what it is that they can do to continue to help um, or to help more than it, what they need to be able to do to um, to help that. We'll have those answers for them and we'll be sharing links throughout the show. But welcome, Paul. Thank you. So, Paul, if we can dive straight in. So what is it that, that Russia kind of wants from Ukraine? And... Why is it? What? Why are they so interested? Yeah, thanks. Good question. I mean, well, first of all, it's a, it is amazing that we're still here uh, a year later. I think that's all down to Putin's miscalculations, really, as to the resilience of the Ukrainian regime, the leadership of Zelensky, uh, and really underestimating the difficulties of his own military. So this is an ongoing war, I and mean, as you say, Putin's interest. Uh, well, really, ultimately, on the on the face of it, he wants security. It's all about, so he says, about uh, ensuring uh, that Ukraine does not become part of NATO, securing uh, the uh, Black Sea uh, fleet in the, in the Crimea. But really, to some extent, this is an excuse. I think what is what has become apparent over the last months uh, is that uh, the issue of Ukraine is to do with uh, Russia's or Putin's perception. Uh, of Russia's identity, Russia as a great power, yeah. and the denial, really, of any rights of Ukraine to a separate uh, identity as an integrated, independent, democratic state. Um, so I think this is the main issue, to deny to deny that uh, existence of an independent Ukraine, and uh, at, the, at the minimum to get to have Ukraine as a vassal state uh, of Russia. Uh, certainly to keep hold of Crimea, that's where the Black Sea fleet is, is and also, uh, if possible, to take and incorporate the eastern parts of Ukraine uh, into Russia, uh, possibly not take over Kiev, uh, but certainly have a, a compliant government uh, in Kiev. And I think it's part of this continuous sense of humiliation that the West has pushed Russia back from its areas of rightful interest uh, the prospect of Ukraine becoming 
uh, part of a of an anti-Russian or a non-Russian alliance that really angers uh, Putin and the Kremlin. So it's part of that um, kind of discourse of, of Russia's humiliation since the end of the of the Cold War. And Ukraine is particularly important uh, because it's part of Russia's identity as a great power. If Russia is supposed to be a great power, then it should mm. at least have influence over its neighbours and particularly uh, Ukraine. Um, and it's an issue of identity as well for many for Putin and many Russian nationalists, Ukraine, Ukraine is part of Russia. Uh, Ukrainians are really Russians. Uh, and that's reinforced by the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill, who supports the war, sees it as a holy war, uh, sees it as keeping the Rus together. You know, historically, Ukraine is seen as part of the wider Rus, the Russian world. Obviously, Ukrainians don't agree with this. Uh, mm. but, <laughs> this is how it's perceived by people like Putin and uh, and Russian nationalists, and that, that's part of the anger. You know, part of the war, is, if you like, is informed by Putin's anger that the Ukrainians are not recognizing that they should be part of the Russian world, and how dare they? They actually want to join NATO and join the European Union, and don't want to be part of uh, the Russian world. So there's a sense of, of sort of anger and uh, annoyance if you like to put it mildly, at, uh, at Ukrainian behaviour. So that in many ways is mm. much, much of the thinking behind the war. And don't forget, around Putin, you have people who think the same. There's the so-called Soloviki, the people of power who came to power with Putin, who largely think the same thing, that Russia is a great power, they're nationalists, uh, they, they think about the historic nature of the Russian state, uh, and so they have very similar attitudes on the on Ukraine. Absolutely, and there there is a school of thought that was expressed on the on the politics show this morning that um, that that uh, with, with domestic so many domestic issues at hand that um, Putin really needs uh, needs a distraction um, from domestic affairs in Russia. Would it be fair to say that this is uh, this is part of his motivation behind the war in Ukraine? Oh yes, I think that is an important aspect. You know, that what you've seen in the over the last few years, uh, the more authoritarian system under Putin has become now more or less a militarized dictatorship, and a war facilitates clamping down on any kind of dissent. Uh, if you criticize the war, if, or if you support Ukraine, you're seeing uh, you're being seen as a traitor, as uh, somebody who's um, uh, attacking. Uh, the, the national interest. So uh, the militarization, the war is very useful for cementing uh, Putin's power. Uh, and it means that he can not only clamp down on any kind of dissent, but to people people who might have opposed the war have left, larger the, uh, many of the potentially awkward people have actually left Russia, and that suits Putin. Um, so it helps us to concentrate power, really. So as you, as you as you say, Paul, um, Russia annexed Crimea in, in two thousand and fourteen with you know very little reaction uh, from um, from the international um, you know from the international um, well the, from other countries, and now um, they're claiming to have, have annexed um, Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia regions, um, even though um, I think the current situation is actually they don't currently control them, control all of, all of those regions. It, 
is it, why is it that, that Putin's uh, particularly claiming them to be Russian? Is that is that geographical or historic, or is that just that they're on the way to Crimea? I think it's largely historical. I think there's a sense in which these regions, particularly what what is what have historically been called Novorossiya, uh, have always really been part of Russia, way back to Catherine the Great. They were incorporated uh, in the 18th century by Catherine the Great. And therefore, even with the construction of Ukraine, they never have never really, from his point of view, been seen as genuinely part of other than Russia. Um, and in, if you like, gather bringing them back into Russia, Putin sees himself in a very historic uh, role. Um, and this is part of the development of his mentality over mm. the last years, uh, particularly through COVID. He sees himself more and more as a kind of historic figure. Uh, undertaking what historically is called the gathering of the lands. Uh, in, in, in Russian history, you see various periods where the Russian state collapses, as it did in the 17th century, uh, and the Romanovs regathered the Russian lands together again. And then again in 1917, uh, the collapse of the Russian state and for Russian nationalists, Stalin uh, achieves the same goal of, of regathering the lands. And you could yeah. argue that Putin sees himself historically in this kind of role, bringing the genuine Russian lands back together again. Uh, so they, these were never, in his, in his view, part of Ukraine. Uh, and they're only really mistakenly part of Ukraine because of what Lenin did when he constructed the Soviet Union. He created these republics, including a Ukrainian republic, and drew a line on a map, or rather Stalin did, uh, drew a line on a map, which was rather artificial, uh, and cut across a historic Russian territories. Um, so the creation, when the Soviet Union collapsed, obviously that uh, Soviet Republic of Ukraine became independent, but in Putin's mind, uh, that was a mistake. Um, it included territories that really historically, including Crimea, should be part of Russia. Um, so he has this kind of very much this kind of historic mm. uh, mission. And in that obviously he's supported by Russian nationalists and uh, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. So, so his whole narrative is basically to deny the existence of Ukraine as a separate country, really? Yeah, well, so, uh, certainly substantial parts of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, and if anything, if, if there is an independent Ukraine around Kiev, mm -hmm. uh, then it's really part of the Russian world uh, and uh, certainly shouldn't be part of, a, of an alternative military alliance. Um, it should be part of... Um, kind of almost a dependency on, on, on Russia. Um, I mean, it's not the same as wanting to incorporate Kiev. I don't think there's any project, although he obviously did attack Kiev, but that was largely to remove Zelensky uh, and uh, dis dispose of the, uh, the, the, the Ukrainian government. Um, but he would want a more dependent Ukrainian government in, in Kiev, but still annex, ultimately, these eastern territories of Donetsk, Luhansk and Zaporozhye and Crimea, obviously, uh, which was never seen as part of Ukraine, given mm -hmm. artificially given by Khrushchev as a present to Ukraine uh, in 1954. Um, but then everybody was ruled by Moscow, so it didn't matter in the Soviet period, mm -hmm. but now it matters um, that the Soviet Republic has become separate and independent. So if we look at the whole issue around sanctions, Paul, it was, uh, you know, that the plan was that, that uh, ultimately the West could deploy sanctions to hurt Russia financially. I think we're all aware of the impact that seems to have had on 
gas prices and particularly those in Europe who are dependent on Russian gas. Do you have any sense of how the sanctions have affected life in Russia, if at all? Well, yeah, I mean, as everybody predicted or hoped that the sanctions would hit the Russian economy, but uh, possibly surprising that what's happened, it hasn't been as hit as, as badly as, as well was as suspected. It has contracted uh, by some 2.5% or whatever, but not as greatly as, as was predicted. In fact, the IMF is talking about the Russian economy growing, uh, not substantially, but marginally growing next year. Uh, and, but that's largely, in some senses, that's masking a problem. Uh, it's largely to do with the fact, obviously, Russia is still send, send, selling gas uh, to, to, to Europe, uh, and it's benefited from uh, increases in, uh, in prices of, of fuel. So the actual um, money which is coming into the state budgets has actually increased money from commodities and selling of energy has actually increased in, in 2022. So they're actually getting more money than they would normally have done. <laughs> Uh, and that's uh, obviously beneficial. Uh, it means that the state can subsidise uh, companies, and there hasn't been there hasn't been any kind of austerity. Uh, there's mm. been no substantial squeezing of the population. Also, the collapse of imports means you've got a very substantial uh, trade surplus. Um, but but that, that disguises certain problems. Um, uh, it's a short-term problem uh, issue. Uh, what you have under the surface is massive capital outflows, obviously complete collapse of uh, uh, foreign uh, direct investment. <clears throat> you've got a shift to the defence sector, so you've got problems of uh, inflation, 17% inflation, uh, and that's going to continue a structural change in the Russian economy. Uh, you've got sanctions. Sanctions have affected the import of parts, uh, so the military will be affected by the lack of parts, the fact that they've got to import finished goods means that uh, they're more expensive and not necessarily as, as high quality. So there are underlying problems in the Russian economy which are coming along. The more the war lasts, so those uh, problems will reveal themselves. Obviously, the, there has been a, a, a lack of access to Western goods, but that's really hit the, 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 the wealthier Russians. Oligarchs have been hit but for many Russians, who cares about the oligarchs? They're, they're all dependent on Putin uh, anyway. Mm. So, um, but the, the the problem for the Russian population is yet to come, uh, and it's it's effectively still being masked by uh, the the benefit that the state has in 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 high energy prices. And I guess what that shows, Paul, is that there are still plenty of people who are happy to buy gas from Russia. Oh yeah. It's very difficult, particularly with the Europeans, Germany, to wean themselves off uh, Russian gas. There, is, there, there are, you know, there have been the embargoes on oil. The United States is, uh, and, and the UK will stop buying oil. Uh, but in terms of gas, uh, some European countries, including Germany, are still highly dependent on, on Russian gas. And this was predicted. I mean, the, the thing about um, 2014, there was no realization there probably was a realization but there was no move to do something about the dependent dependence mm. of the eu on, on on russian gas and obviously that has now come home to roost but there is a commitment if you like to i mean now that the realization is, is a problem there's a commitment uh, to try to reduce dependency on russian gas and presumably if that happens if that happens uh, then russia does have a problem because you don't you haven't had diversification of the economy uh, and 
selling uh, energy to China, gas is not an alternative. You can't easily switch the pipelines mm. uh, from west to east. So the so-called pivot to to China, obviously China has helped. Um, some countries like China, India, and Turkey have helped uh, to divert exports, imports uh, away from um, sanctioned country, but it's not an alternative uh, to Russian um, uh, sales of energy to, to the European Union, at least not for a long time. No. Simon. So with Putin um, seemingly able able to execute this, this war on Ukraine without without any serious challenge um, from within Russia, how, how is he able to manage that? Well, I think obviously part of it is to do with the fact that you haven't had mass austerity uh, yet, so people haven't mm. really been hit by the ordinary people have not really been hit by the economic costs of the war. Also, in many ways, the narrative that Putin uh, puts over, particularly the state media puts over, uh, rings true that uh, NATO, we've had a NATO enlargement uh, since the 1990s, the benefits of westernization in the 1990s were poverty. So this idea of the West being out to get us, that we're under threat, uh, rings true for many uh, Russians. Uh, and most Russians still rely on the state media. And if you look at some of the rhetoric on the state media, it is really quite frightening. Uh, far more extreme in many ways than, than anything coming out from Putin. Uh, so, and the Levada uh, uh, polling agency, which is still operating, uh, argues that something like 70% still support uh, for the war. Now, obviously, people question the reliability of those polls, but there's no reason to denounce, uh, doubt the fact that there's still majority uh, support for the war. Um, uh, in terms of an being anti the war, very difficult. You've already, even before the war started, uh, had suppression of the demonstrations, very difficult for more than one person to actually gather together and demonstrate. Uh, people obviously are worried about their jobs, are worried about their families, they're not going to risk it. Um, and if there is this kind of popular support for the war, then people don't want to stand out uh, and be on their own, really. Um, and also there is this kind of political apathy, uh, that let, let, which basically goes back in Russian culture. Not, not all, all, all the time, because Russians are, can be prone to revolutions and Putin has to be careful of that. <laughs> uh, but generally speaking, there has been a political culture of submissiveness, of, of letting the authorities get on with it. Uh, that they know better, and we'll look after, we'll look after ourselves. Um, I mean, you haven't even, uh, even amongst those Russians that have left Russia, you haven't had substantial anti-war demonstrations. Um, so, uh, in many ways, he he is able to, uh, if you like, sustain uh, support for the time being. Now, what happens? Uh, obviously, he's talking about a, a further mass mobilization. If there's no victory. Uh, and it looks as though thousands of Russians are effectively being sent uselessly to their deaths, then I think that he can run into trouble. Uh, and mm. he must remember his history. If you look at the, the 1917 revolution kicked off with mobilized so or soldiers who are about to be mobilized to be sent to a fruitless conflict at the front. They began eventually to turn their guns against their officers and, uh, and the government. So... You know, Russians can very quickly turn, especially armed, mobilized soldiers might start rebelling if they're being seen to go into a war which is badly led and for which there's no apparent 
uh, purpose, really. So there are dangers on the horizon, uh, not and, immediately, but with, you know, in, in the future. And if we look at one of those specifically, uh, Western allies have reluctantly at times supplied uh, initially sort of defensive armaments, and, and that seems to have been ramping up recently with the deployment of tanks. And now there's a request for um, fighter jets. How do you see that unfolding and, and how do you perceive the risk of that that leading to escalation? Well, I think there is quite clearly a commitment and it was confirmed when Zelensky came to the European Council and Parliament, a commitment to, um, to support Ukraine to victory, uh, whatever that means. And obviously we can debate that, uh, how you interpret victory. Does victory mean throwing the Russians out of Crimea? Uh, out of eastern Ukraine or uh, simply to the borders as they were in 2014. But there is a commitment there to back um, Ukraine. Uh, but as you rightly say, there has been a reluctance. And it's interesting within NATO that the kind of leaders in terms of pushing support uh, for Ukraine have been the Poles and the Baltic states really dragging the Germans uh, and the United States along uh, behind them. Obviously, the UK also has been uh, at the forefront. Um, so, in many ways, uh, NATO and the European Union has been slow to provide the military, but eventually it happens. And I've no doubt mm. if the war does continue, then you know, there will be a provision of, uh, of fighter jets. Um, and it depends on how the, you know, if the, if the intended so-called mobilization occurs uh, uh, by Putin uh, in the spring, they seem to be building up to that. And then, and it looks as though the Ukraine is being pushed back, then there will be a, a need for the West to really up its um, uh, support, uh, given this commitment. Um, so, but what I think what they're afraid of, as you rightly say, is uh, the, uh, an outright conflict between NATO and mm. uh, Russia. Partly, as not, not because they just want, they don't want to get into actual direct war, but also I think they fear feeding into Putin's rhetoric. This is what Putin wants. He wants, for the purposes of mobilizing his own population, he wants this war to be seen as a conflict with the West. Uh, and, uh, and to some extent, you know, supplying more and more military equipment from NATO, there is a danger that that will play into Putin's um, playbook uh, and enable him to mobilize the population much more uh, effectively. The Ukraine is being used is a cover and being used by NATO and the West to destroy Russia. And that's what he wants. He wants that kind of rhetoric to ring true. And there is therefore the danger that if the West, if NATO supplies this equipment, then it could actually feed that rhetoric. Mm. No, thank you, Paul. That's, that's, that's extremely mm. insightful. And I think, you know, what the message I take from that is that, um, is that it doesn't look like there's going to be any very quick solution um, and that the tide could turn one of two ways. I think in your answers there, you gave a, a very clear picture of, you know, if the rhetoric bites and he, he can convince the population that, you know, it's NATO picking on Russia, that could play in his favour. But if that doesn't happen and the the economic sanctions and the reality of austerity start to bite for the Russian population, then the tide could turn against him. Yeah, yeah, I think there's uh, much will happen over that. I think this will continue for at least another year. There's not going to be an easy solution. And even if 
Russia is pushed back, it's always going to be a threat to Ukraine. So there's a long-term problem that NATO and the European Union has. Uh, and the question is, does it have the commitment to sustain uh, Ukraine and support it for the long term? Uh, mm. Because even if Russia pulls back and appears to lose, it's always going to be uh, a threat to Ukraine. It's effectively lost Ukraine. Uh, Absolutely. And, um, so the commitment of the West has to be long-term, or of NATO has to be long-term. Brilliant. Thank you, Paul. So, Simon, um, did you want to uh, lead us into some of our other contributors who we recorded yesterday? Um, yeah, indeed. So um, the first of our recorded interviews um, is from uh, Marika Jagger, um, who um, works with the Diocese of Portsmouth to help match um, to help match. Um, refugees that that need um, need to identify a host, so somewhere to, somewhere to stay in safety in the UK, um, and um, basically matching them um, and their requirements with the host. So I'll, I'll let um, I'll let Marika explain it better because she explains it much better than I do. My name is Marika Jagger, so I've uh, I work as a refugee coordinator for the Diocese of Portsmouth. Um, the job came uh, early um, last spring, uh, so spring 2022. I just uh, got a call. Um, because of all the uh, the programs for the homes for Ukraine, um, we're trying to uh, manage it in the local area, and the diocese has come forward to uh, work with a couple of charities uh, to organise hosts in in our local area. So, um, so in order, to, if you are uh, if people are interested in hosting, uh, what we encourage them to do is we've got a website for the diocese set up. And on there, there is a link and it will take them through some of the uh, questions so that we can um, just clarify what they're offering, what kind, how many bedrooms, usually it's detailed questions like how big is their house, how many bedrooms um, are available for uh, their uh, refugee guests, mm -hmm. uh, and then also um, how big is the house and how many uh, family members are, are living there. Because we just need to try to fi to find out, uh, you know, what how the how we will fit with um, some of the family numbers that we get from the refugee. Uh, on the uh, on the refugee guest side, uh, they um, they are when they reach the the borders in in Ukraine or we, when they go into Poland, there are uh, registration centers that set up by various charities, including the, the United Nation. Um, so our uh, we work with a charity called uh, Ukrainian Sponsorship Pathway UK uh, that's set up specially to go there and uh, interview um, and register uh, Ukrainians. So they collect profiles, uh, information, um, quite detailed profile of uh, of the potential guests. You know, we, we need to know um, their uh, their interests, their hobby, what occupations they're in, so that what we can do is match then match them with. Uh, the host uh, and make sure that we've got uh, what we try to do is we get opportunities for the Ukrainian guests, uh, refugee to settle in the local area, find jobs and, you know, find schools for their children. And um, and we try to make sure that they can sort of settle in quite um, reasonably. Hmm. There's, there's lots of lots of things to consider there then. Yes, it's um it's quite an involved process. Um, so um, especially the, uh, for for us here in, um, in the diocese, we try to get to know um, the hosts as well. Um, 
and um, people come, uh, people have responded from various uh, things, either through the churches or we've done some uh, interview in the um, on the BBC News ch channel. So they've come from uh, also from watching this um, those footage. So um, what we do is we try and interview them and uh, make sure that uh, we know um, we know who 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 they are because it's uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of securities and safeguardings that's being put in place, um, you know, by uh, by the council as well. So hosts do get uh, DBS checked by the uh, council, uh, and the council also come and check their homes and make sure that um, um, that it's uh, suitable and that you know uh, people can live comfortably in there. So the and and the matching process also. Um, I mentioned earlier how. What we try to do is we try our best to make sure that the um, the refugee guests can um, can actually settle in quite quickly, find jobs, and um, uh, and move on really, and um, and that's uh, really what we're trying to do. So um, so sometimes it's like uh, putting together a jigsaw puzzle, and yeah. um, you know, schools, job, transportation, and everything. It can take quite a while, but um, it's very satisfying when it all all the pieces come together i'm sure it is and do you do you have any idea how how many um, how many people you've been you've been able to help settle yeah so um the first six months um uh working on this we've uh, we've managed um to match uh, about uh to settle about 51 people into 22 families um we match a lot more than than that but uh, the nature of the situation as well is that sometimes we make a match um it's going well to stage and and then um things don't work out or uh, people get different offers or um situation change um one thing that is uh really the nature of this uh, of this job um really is that there are lots of changes things change um, even government change and, you know, develop their policies. So lots of things um, that was put in place in February 2022, um, three months on, six months on, um, are changing or de uh, developed. So um, so that's just the nature of, of, of the uh, programme. It's interesting you you mentioned that because I was going to ask you how how the the matches um, you know are working out and what sort of challenges both parties do do face. Um, I think there's quite a lot of adjustment between the the you know the host and the refugee guests. I mean, if you uh, if you think about it, um, uh, there are cultural differences that's uh, quite uh, obvious, um, and. Um, and there are also some kinds of um, different expectations. Um, uh, what uh, what we may understand uh, in the UK, um, even I think sometimes uh, normal people just, um, I don't think we quite, I don't think sometimes I quite uh, uh, understand the differences between um, immigration, migrants, asylum seekers, uh, and refugees, and there are actually uh, some differences, and so also some, therefore, uh, differences of uh, of treatment. And there are uh, all kinds of. Um, I mentioned the Ukrainian sponsorship pathways for the Ukraines. Um, the government has developed two programs. One is called the Homes for Ukraine programs, and the other one is the the family program. So if you've got family. Uh, 
from Ukraine and, um, or Ukrainians, they can bring in their family into the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and those without then go through the Homes for Ukraine programs. And the two programs also have very different features in it. So, um, yeah, it's quite, um, um, it can be quite uh, involved. And there are lots of um, lots of questions uh, sometimes what, what we, tr- uh, we try to do. When... Um, I mentioned about trying to match people. Um, it's because also we try to to match the host uh, and the guests because we know that the uh, the minimum requirement for them uh, for hosts to uh, to host Ukrainian guests is six months, mm-hmm. and uh, six months is a very long time for uh, for strangers to uh, to live together in a house. Mm-hmm. I mean. I don't know about you. I I've hosted families over Christmas and short uh, short holidays like that, and you know sometimes um, after sometimes uh, things can get quite um, uncomfortable, um, and we're very aware of this uh, this situation. So we do we do spend quite a long time um, with our host in the matching process to just make sure that things um, that the both the host and the guests are. Uh, are a match um and then um and then when uh when their profile match we also organize a zoom um meeting with the, with them um it's the best that we could do in terms of face to face as close as we can have a chat and 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 feel some kind of a chemistry this is really really like a matchmaking program you yeah. know you get all the profiles and then you put them together in the in the room so to speak uh, and then see whether uh, you know what the chemistry is like. Yeah. And um, both uh, uh, both myself and um, uh, a mem- uh, usually an interpreter from the USB UK charity or Citizens UK uh, will be present in the room. Uh, we do we do trans uh, we do use translators even if their English is um, uh, good enough because there are things that are still lost in translations as well. Indeed. And can you give us a, um, an example, any example of it going really well? Um, I'm always amazed by the generosity of, of, of people. And, and, um, and I also learned that in doing this, I, I mustn't prejudge people uh, and prejudge the, the situation. So we had, uh, we had quite a few lovely fa- uh, families. I think the way um, the time that we take in, in, in matching people makes it really, uh, works really well. Mm-hmm. Um the, the last one uh, we had just before Christmas, I've got a, a vicar on Hailing Island um, with a couple of uh, guests. It's actually two mothers uh, and two children aged five and six. So mm-hmm. um, um, so immediately you can uh, you can sort of tell that uh, there will be dis- disruption. So someone who's been uh, li- uh, living um, uh, on her own, maybe uh, suddenly we'll have two families and two young children uh, running around. But I think, um, uh, but it has it has worked really uh, really well um, uh, with with a lot of the families because I think also that um, we have uh, we have prepared the host about their expectations, so they know that there will be cultural differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know what they can and they cannot do because through the Citizens UK program, the hosts. Um, I've been getting weekly uh, workshops in the beginning of, of the springs. They learn about the visa process, how long it will take. They learn about um, some cultural differences with the Ukrainians. We've got some Ukrainians to tell them about usually uh, what guests do and um, 
you know, um, Ukrainians love to uh, clean your house for you. Uh, it does. It's their way of saying thank you. So stuff like that. That makes it really, um, really work well. Mm-hmm. Um, so if uh, I said, I have to say that um, out of the twenty-two families right now that uh, that we've we've matched, uh, we've not had any uh, fallout uh, from that, um, or any. We we watch out also for like safeguarding issues and. Mm-hmm. We have not see, seen that, um, and I think um, I can I can credit the the process. I say it takes um, it takes longer maybe, mm-hmm. and um, I, I've seen things that where people just um, make matches on Facebook, which um, I really wouldn't recommend it. Um, I think uh, even the government uh, website suggests uh, some um, bona fide uh, charities to go through some pro- programs. Because there are quite a quite a lot of things that uh, that you need to prepare yourself for this uh, for this kind of um, relationship. Mm, in, in, indeed, like you say, there'll be things that both parties need to need need to prepare for and and support for to um, to, to manage the situation on, ongoing. And it's good to hear that the the families that you're dealing with and the hosts that you're dealing with are you know are, get, are getting that, um, and that's why you put all this, the effort. At the front to mm-hmm. to get the um to, to find the right match as it were to um to find find the right place um for the for the right family can yeah can i also add i think also that sort of the host expectations quite uh, important because i think um there is there isn't one uh, stereotype refugee and i think that's the uh, sometimes the issue that we we have in this country we we hear so much about um and we, we have an image of what a, a refugee is. And mm-hmm. actually, uh, it isn't like that at all. Um, um, you know, there are as many different Ukrainians as, as there are many different types of English, Welsh and Scottish people yeah. in this country. And um, and also different types of abilities and expectations. So um, one of the success stories I have is I have, I have a professional in the insurance industry mm-hmm. and she arrived in the, uh, she arrived in this country and uh, within two months um, because she's got uh, uh, she's able to get herself uh, an equivalent job that uh, she did in uh, in Ukraine so it's not the case that that um, Ukrainians will be necessarily staying with the host for six months or a whole year or you know sometimes I think uh, people get uh, worried about how long or um, how long the uh, Ukrainians uh, mm-hmm. refugees would stay in their homes, and there are also kinds of uh, ways and means to sort of um, keep. I mean, one of the one of the things I would say is like like in any situation, have a good communication between the two parties, and and you know just just ask uh, or just tell, and uh, um, and we we ask people to also. Uh, set up um house rules or just some is this always the first question that the ukrainian asks you know what are your house rules and um and of course sometimes uh, the hosts say oh we've got no rules at all but of course i think um to be honest there are some rules i mean i think you do need to to set up yeah. expectations you know Sure. No, that, that that makes sense. So, this all sounds really, really great. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, for sharing that with us. So, um, anybody um, listening that is either um, either seeking a host or someone that is um, wanting to become a host, what what, what should um, what should they be doing? What should, what would you like them to do? Um, 
my advice will be to actually register with um, proper programs. So um, the government website has got um, a, a list of uh, charities with experience um, in, in this, what the, the recommended charities. So we work with Citizens UK. Mm -hmm. um, so they can... Uh, 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 register through uh, uh, through Citizens UK, and of course we um, Diocese of Portsmouth. Um, uh, we work with uh, in the Diocese of Winchester. Also, we work together uh, with uh, Citizens UK. So you can look on the website of the Diocese of Winchester and Diocese of Portsmouth. There will be lots of inform information about um, how to register um, and how to become host, really. Uh, that's what I would say locally. Mm -hmm. No, that that's brilliant, and we'll share all of the all of those um, all of those links um, in our in our details to to make sure that um, people have access to them. And are, are there any events coming up that you would want to share with us? Yes, um, I would really like to invite people those interested in hosting um, the uh, Citizens UK and USB UK. Uh, we're organising an event on the on the 24th of february it's a friday evening from six o'clock to seven thirty. it's uh really uh for everyone interested or in either hosting or even supporting mm -hmm. it's going to be a, a big uh gathering um you can meet other hosts and of course we can hear also from um citizens uk and usb uk uh, about um the update of this programs one years on and all the lessons that we we've learned so i think um uh, anyone who uh, who's interested in hosting i would really recommend you to come to the february 24th uh, event it will be online so it's, it's it should be really um uh, it should be easy for people to join um uh online and um and you can yeah you can join it from your own living room so no traveling to need and, oh, and there's plenty of yeah, plenty of um, discussion about that. And then what we will do is we will follow up uh, on that event locally as well. So do come to the 24th of February then. Okay, fantastic. 24th of February. Marika, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. It's been a, pl a pleasure talking to you. And thanks very much for your time. Well, absolutely fascinating. And, uh, you know, an incredible job of work to be done to you know, for people to, to open up their homes. And there was so much to, to, to pick up in that, in that interview, the, you know, the cultural differences, the, you know, what are the house rules? And, and it's, uh, it really set me thinking in terms of, you know, every house has rules, you just probably don't get to writing them down. So uh, a fantastic piece of work being done there by Marika and her team. Um, yeah, it, it must admit it opened my eyes to the um, to the complexities of it. It isn't um, it isn't just a simple thing of number of people, number of rooms. You've got other things to consider. Mm. Um, but also the 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 interesting thing there to to also relate is that um, Ukraine refugees are entitled to work in the UK, so um, they'll be you know finding finding their feet for the t for the time that they're here. Mm. Um, um, you know, getting kids into schools, fi finding jobs, so that you know, so they may not be staying with the host. They may then be moving moving on to uh, to other accommodation, um, and you know, um, trying to claim some sort of semblance of 
of normality in for for their you know for their children for their lives in in such a terrible situation so it's um yeah lot, lots to consider there um but some links that i've shared in into the into the chat for um for our listeners if if they are interested in um in taking part in that but certainly that is something that they have need of um of more hosts and more support perfect and so next up i believe we've got marina I am Marina Kuzmenko, and uh, I'm one of the coordinators of uh, Hampshire Ukrainian Community. And uh, we are a volunteering organization. We don't have any official registration or any legal entity behind us. We're just a bunch of volunteers who are, um, yeah, we are ethnical Ukrainians. I'm Ukrainian by myself, and we are trying to help help Ukraine from Putin and help Ukrainians in Portsmouth and Portsmouth and nearby, yes, all, all the areas which are around Portsmouth and in Hampshire, we are trying to support them. How does the, the group way work and in what ways are you, are you helping people? What, what sort of things do you need to do? So actually, um, we, we don't have like regular meetings now or something like that. Previously, when uh, the Ukrainians just have arrived to Portsmouth. We have uh, we had our regular meetings in the churches here in Saint Simon's Church and in North End Baptist Church. Uh, but now, uh, since uh, most of the Ukrainians they are busy with learning English with their jobs, they are setting up their lives here. Uh, we are meeting occasionally on some specific events and. Uh, the, the way how we communicate, we have a WhatsApp group. We have over 200 people in our WhatsApp group. Uh, it's only about Ukrainians. We don't have any other people, so we communicate over there about uh, current issues, discuss any opportunities for Ukrainians which uh, are here in, in the UK and any problems, questions. So everything like uh, uh, alive, in the chat this is how we collaborate and if there is something which is um, like the uh, community initiative for example in december we had the idea to um, organize fundraising concerts uh, to get some money for ukrainian army so we did it and um, yeah this is how it started from from a simple idea in the whatsapp group and then we made it you say there that you, the focus was on supporting the the Ukrainian soldiers. I guess as a group in the UK, what what are the biggest challenges that your group faces at the moment? Uh, currently, uh, we as since we don't have these um, problems with the location of our meeting or anything like that, um, we don't struggle to get in touch with each other. But Ukrainians here, they have problems with, uh, um, obviously now for many of them, the uh, program Homes for Ukraine is finished and uh, they need to leave their sponsor houses, uh, sponsor houses and uh, move on to their privately rented accommodation. And it's always challenging. It's very difficult to find the, uh, the, the flats, the houses for for families, and um, even Portsmouth City Council, they support uh, 
every Ukrainian is supported by Cosmos City Council with the payment of uh, part of the rent payment, but still uh, it's always an issue to find appropriate um, appropriate home and uh, not so many landlords uh, demonstrate their desire to, to, to provide their homes uh, for renting, for private rent for Ukrainians. So if there is anyone who is uh, the landlord and they wish to support local Ukrainians, it will be absolutely great if you will contact Potmo City Council Ukrainian team and uh, suggest your accommodation as, as a part to, to support our, um, our families. Yes, so this is one of the main directions. Also, um, we have always ongoing uh, question about jobs. So uh, our Ukrainians who arrived here, they, most of them, they have high education. At the same time, the problem is about their English, because unfortunately in Ukraine, we don't have very strong um, ecosystem of English learning and the English speaking uh, communities. So that's why most of the Ukrainians who are here, they uh, don't have strong fluent speaking uh, skills in English. Uh, but uh, still they are looking for jobs and they are ready to work on any type of job. So if you are an employee uh, or sorry, an employer uh, who have any space free uh, or any role which can be uh, taken by Ukrainian, we will be much appreciated about this information. And uh, you can send this information to the group in Facebook called Postmos Helps Ukraine or to Facebook page Hampshire Ukrainian Community. And we will share this information with all our group of two, uh, over 200 people, uh, Ukrainian people here. And also, this is one of the directions which are now uh, emerging. Um, we have the two-box appeal for soldiers in Ukraine. So the directions which I mentioned before, it's for Ukrainians in Portsmouth and in, uh, in Hampshire. But uh, we also try to support Ukrainians in Ukraine, and we are collecting um, basic stuff like um, toothbrushes, toothpaste, razors, um, any type of food, snacks, tea, uh, coffee, everything which will be helpful for soldiers who are uh, fighting for Ukraine in Bakhmut and eastern uh, part of, of Ukraine. So if you can donate anything, any item is helpful for us. So please bring it to South Sea Library or Statue House in Isni. This is our two main, uh, these are two main uh, drop-off points for, for our shoebox appeal, which we have now, and uh, we plan to bring these uh, donations to Ukraine uh, before Easter. Okay, it's lovely. So, um, so I'm presuming there are details of, of those as well on your, on, your, on your Facebook page as well, but there's actually two locations people can drop stuff off to so that's that's really um that's really good so we'll make sure to share all of that um in the in the live stream uh for our listeners um, um yes, if, if... Uh, apologies for no no go on also i want to add i just forgot a little bit that uh this friday on 24th of february we will have uh, said anniversary of of starting the war so we will have two events 
uh, even not two events, two, two um, memorial services um, in, in the St. John's Catholic, Catholic Cathedral in Portsmouth. But also we will have official events uh, in Guildhall Square. So at 11 a.m. on 24th of February, uh, we will raise flags uh, for Ukraine and we will have a, um, a minute of silence for all the victims of this war. Um, and then at 12, um, 12 p.m., well, quarter past 12, sorry, yes, quarter past 12, at St. John Catholic Cathedral in Portsmouth, we will have our memorial service for, so everyone is invited to stay and pray for, for everyone who is suffering because of this war and for the souls of people who died because of this war. But also at 5 p.m. on the 24th of February, we will have a meeting of Ukrainians so it will be also in the same place, St. John Catholic Cathedral, but it will be on Ukrainians only event, and they will have our um, our praise for for Ukraine, and we also hope to have some uh, some just conversations afterwards. So every Ukrainian is welcome to come at 5 p.m., but mm -hmm. everyone is welcome to come either at 11 to Guildhall Square or at quarter past 12 to St. John's Catholic Cathedral in, in Baltimore. Thank you very much. Um, we'll make sure to, to get that shared. Thank you. Thank you, Simon, and thank you, Ian, for your, for your decision to, to, to pay attention to this to this problem, which is ongoing, and I understand that you have mm. many, we have many issues in, in current politics and everything in the UK, but mm. thank you for paying attention to Ukrainian, Ukrainian problems. Uh, uh, thank you, Simon. Uh, more than happy to support Marina, and thank you for all the. So again, wonderful to hear that activism, and I guess Paul, just listening to that with us, did you also get that such a strong sense of of the the Ukrainian community kind of, you know, reaching out whilst in the UK to kind of form reform those bonds? Yes, it's very inspiring the way that uh, people have come together people in Portsmouth helping the Ukrainians uh, and also Ukrainian people coming together to help each other. I mean, this is one of the, in many ways, aspects of the war, the way in which um, there's a great, greater sense of Ukrainian identity and people working together and, and helping each other in the face of this um, uh, crisis. Yeah, I mean, it was very inspiring speaking to Marina yesterday. I just, I was left with just this strong sense of 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 determination that, that you know well we'll we'll get a group of people together you know we'll find a way to communicate you know we're not going to bother with official meetings and minutes and we're just going to find a way to to get information to the people that need it and and you know everyone's looking out for each other mm -hmm. inspiring definitely I guess that leads us to our final video. Uh, yes, so our, our final interview is with Olha, and um, she's a Ukraine refugee um, who's um, come to Portsmouth uh, with her daughter. So I'm just going to share her interview now. My name is Olha Mosons. I'm 40. Oh, sorry, I'm 34 years old, and I arrived Oops. in the UK with my little daughter nine months ago because of uh, war in Ukraine. 
Um, I'm from southeastern part of Ukraine that now, unfortunately, un under occupation uh, of Russian soldiers. Um, so we spent one month uh, after war started in Ukraine, and then I take my daughter and we leave. We lived um, with my husband, with my whole family um, in Ukraine. I had a job in bank as bank manager. So my family, um, friends, we have really great and happy life. And then that was obviously all torn apart by Putin's invasion. Um, um, a horrific thing um, to, to happen. So how how was it that you um, that you made your way to the UK and ultimately um, to Portsmouth? And how how was that how was that process and journey? It was really tough. Um, it's really uh, far away from the place where I used to live to um, other country like Poland. Uh, so take maybe two or three days to. Uh, we went at first in Hungary and we lived. Uh, my daughter and me uh, and I we lived in Hungary for two months, um, and then I read about this uh, program in the UK, Homes for Ukraine, and I just made post on Facebook and find my hosts, and then we um, went to Portsmouth. So what's been your impression of Portsmouth and, and have you received the welcome that you hoped for? Yeah, at first, my host, my family host was really supportive and they still are since nine months. Um, so I'm very lucky. And when we arrived in Portsmouth, I found a lot of different groups for Ukraine. Um, and... and um, help with learning the language, um, so it was really welcome. Okay, so and what are your what are your hopes for the for the future? It's um, really strange questions. I don't know to be honest. I cannot make any plans for future. Now we all all Ukrainians now just waiting for the victory. Uh, I don't know what my next plan. I know only for a couple next months my plans, but not for long future. Do you, your life is on hold really until until the horrible situations end? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. It's because my I'm here, my daughter is here in the UK, but the rest my my husband, my mom, my brother, my niece, they all are now in Ukraine. So I don't know how can I make any plans or do anything. So just we now only waiting. Are, are you still able to keep in contact with your husband and your family in Ukraine? Yes, yes. They, yes, they moved in different part of Ukraine. Uh, so they pretty well, uh, as I can say. But they're safe uh, as you as safe you can be in they've been in ukraine so but i can make contact phone calls and video calls still not the same and in terms of our listeners is there is there anything you would ask for uh, our listeners to do to continue to support ukrainian families in the uk um the main uh, issues it's not enough host in the uk uh, it's still a lot of families, they struggles, 
a lot of families uh, from uh, territory that now under occupation, a lot of people without homes, place to live. Um, so, um, but the more hosts it will be, the better it will be for Ukrainian families. For example, I know a lot of Ukrainians in Portland that uh, arrived, li lived a couple months with their host and then move on to apartments, share houses, and uh, but need more hosts. Yeah, well, certainly, um, if there's anybody out there listening that um, that wants to do that, then that's what that's another thing that can help. So, thank you, thank you very much for that. And I'll, thank I'll you. Thoughts, um, thoughts with you, and thank you very much for, for giving us your time. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. It's really important, and you know, this is something we 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 really want to keep. You know. The danger with news, isn't it, that that is that news moves on, and we're we're really keen ourselves just to keep the uh, the Ukrainian issue in at the forefront of the minds of people of Portsmouth. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And that one was, uh, you know, very difficult to 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 listen to in terms of that. You know, for me, that real world insight into a life effectively on hold, and um, you know, I I guess I. Uh, I think we were both buoyed by the, you know, that was strength of resolve that said, you know, we're just waiting for the victory to come, um, you know, to take the positives out of that. Um, so, uh, yes, but uh, a, a very tough way to be living your life at the moment. Yeah, indeed. Lump and throat stuff. Can't even begin to to imagine it. Um, it's it's horrific. But um, but the resilience of people like Olga and and. Uh, and a fellow countryman is um, uh, well. It's definitely to be admired. Um, Paul, would it, was there anything that um, that you wanted to add at all there? Well, just to reinforce, I mean, to brings home the devastation of ordinary people's lives and how the pointlessness really of war, how it disrupts people, uh, and it shows the kind of resilience of people and the way they're coming together and you know, finding strategies and forms of cooperation to help survive this really and i think paul you couldn't have summed that up any better and i think that's uh thank you once again for a marvelous contribution um it's been really invaluable and uh thanks to uh, all of our contributors that uh that helped to give us an insight Let, let's hope we don't have to do a second anniversary yeah 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 uh, thank you for inviting me uh, um and thank uh, glad to con contribute and as i say i hopefully uh, we won't be visiting this again, but I fear uh, this will go on and with tragic, all the kinds of tragic consequences that we've been discussing uh, on this uh, programme. So you've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And our guest has been Paul Flenley. Marika Jaggers. Marina I've been Simon Sansbury. Uh, please join us uh, next week for at 6.27 uh, when we'll be looking at voter ID and what sort of ID you need to take with you to be able to vote in person at a polling station on May the 4th. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast 
you can also follow us on Twitter at PompeyPolitics1. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa, play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. stop. See? It's easy.